Bretto, this is the week to get your tickets to the Wellness Summit. Why is that MP? Because Bretto, one lucky person who registers before this Sunday, July 28, will win the ultimate wellness experience. Imagine two nights in the Wellness Real Estate epicenter of Australia, Lucent Gasworks in Brisbane. The lucky winner receives return airfares to Brisbane on Virgin Australia. Plus, we'll organise you an Uber from Brisbane Airport to Lucent and back again. And we'll throw in 200 bucks in dining vouchers. And you can get an all-access, all-areas pass to Total Fusion, one of the best fitness studios in the country and the home of the largest Himalayan salt lamp in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, positive ions going everywhere, Bretto. This incredible prize valued at over $2,000. Jeepers. All you need to do is register for the Wellness Summit by this Sunday, July 28. You're registering for 16 hours of powerhouse wellness over two days, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne, featuring your favourite Wellness Couch podcasters and world-class exhibitors. Can you afford to miss the biggest Wellness Summit ever? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up For A Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, Up For A Chat about the hottest topics that are important to you. Inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. I'm Kim Morrison. And I'm Cindy O'Mara. And OMG, listeners, today we have an amazing guest, another one of Cindy's extraordinary finds. This, you know, we really are in the presence of greatness today because we have an associate professor um, on the show with us today. Um, Dr. Dana Stanley is joining us. Now, you may or may not have heard of her, but let me say this about that. This woman is working behind the scenes to find out everything that she needs to find out about the gut microbiota. And she's working with animals and she's working with humans and it's time to throw to Kimmy because she's going to ask the million-dollar question. Ready, go! (laughs) Welcome, Dr. Dana. But I was curious when the minute Cindy said that you were coming on the show, what possessed you? to start your life and did you wake up at one morning age nine or ten and go I want to look into the gut of a chicken tell us how you got into this work well I started my PhD working on beer believe it or not so I worked on yeast that we use commonly to make beer Uh, actually Carlton United Breweries Victoria Bitter was my PhD and uh, I got my love for for working with microbes there. I worked with the strain that makes beer and I used um, um, sort of GMO-free mutagenesis, adaptive evolution, to make that beer strain more tolerant to ethanol and more tolerant to production pressures and a lot of other things. Um, After that, um, just after I finished PhD, the microbiota area sort of started. I was, my interest was in pathways, biochemistry and gene expression. But then I realized I learned more about microbiota and I learned that, for example, that uh, only 10% of our cells in our body are human. So uh, they outnumber, the bacterial cells outnumber human cells 10 times. So it's only 10% human, 90% bacteria. That didn't make sense to me. 
And then I learned that they have 100 times more genes than human genes, so about 100 times more of gene products, the proteins that flow through my body are made by bacteria and only like tiny 1% is made by me. And then later on learning more about them, what fascinated me was were the studies about obesity and about, for example, one of the studies that fascinated me in the beginning when before I decided to move into this area was a fecal transplant from male mouse into female mouse, made females made equal amount of testosterone after fecal transplant. So obviously those bacteria, uh, you know how bacteria, you know, swim around and then find a piece of DNA and gobble it in and put it in their genome to see what that piece can make. So they've exchanged a lot of uh, a lot of genome with their host in in whose gut they exist. So human microbiota will have actually be able to make some of human genes as well, and uh, and so they contribute. They make hormones uh, that make us crave specific food. For example, bacteria that love sugar that grow on sugar. We have some bacteria that grow on fat and other that grow on protein. But those that love sugar they will make us crave that piece of cake just to feed them. They can send signals that control our behavior. They can make us anxious. They can make us happy. So to the extent to which that bacteria kind of can control our behavior just was, I found it so fascinating. And then after a while, we uh, sort of scientific community officially um, sort of listed gut microbiota as human organ or organ of every mammal or any other sort of animals that have gut microbiota. So um, the influence they have to human health and animal health uh, is just fascinating. And it is an area of research that I could easily say uh, exploded in last 10 years with modern technology, with sequencing and other techniques that were not available to us before. Um, these technologies allowed us to see bacteria that we cannot culture. And that suddenly opened the horizons for us, like that we can see and investigate things that we cannot grow in Petri dish. And later on, we realized that uh, about a sort of 25%, some people, some researchers will say 20, some will say 30, something around that um, amount of different species in our gut are those that we can culture and we knew about before the sequencing methods. So now we can actually see the whole picture and a lot of amazing research came out out of this area in the last 10 years. Well, you said a mouthful, I've got to admit, and I've written down a million things. And (laughs) I want to actually go back to something that you said, um, that the microbiota or the microbiome Um, of humans make you crave sugar so that they have that sugar or that you eat that cake or they'll they'll, um, eat protein or they'll eat fat and that changes behavior. Do you also see that in animals? Yes. Well, animals, I specifically work on, um, on livestock animals and they are animals that pretty much feed 
human population with with meat with meat market and um their their nutrition i believe i personally believe that nutrition for developed for chickens and cattle and for sheep and and pigs is better designed than human nutrition because human nutritionists cannot agree about anything oh we need to eat fat free oh no we need more fat or we need the human nutrition is currently a big mess uh, whereas uh, livestock nutrition is very straightforward for example um, in 1950s broilers chicken meat chicken that we could grow uh, would need about 10 times more time to grow to the specific weight to specific weight that compared to nowadays chickens and that was uh, those achievements were uh, sort of improvements in in uh, in productivity of these livestock animals is based on good nutrition, really perfectly defined nutrition, and very good uh, improvement on uh, biosecurity, pathogen control, and also uh, selective breeding of those that perform the best. So Dana, can I just interrupt you there for a second? You talk about good nutrition for animals and it's nutritionally sound and they've tested pathogens and all these things. Are you talking the fact that you have identified every single nutrient the animal needs and then is it made in a laboratory or are you actually still talking real food? Because what I see some animals fed may nutritionally look right on the label, so to speak, but is it something that's natural in their food source? Yes, the food sources are definitely all natural, but um, amount of supplements, vitamins, amino acids, uh, you know, and enzymes, for example, that we add to aid digestion, that is the bit that is uh, really perfectly defined, as well as the ratio of protein, when they need more protein, when they need less protein in their life cycle, and all sorts of other things that are perfectly defined. But the nutrients, let me just say for poultry feed uh, would be barley, uh, sorghum, uh, wheat, corn, um, and that's sort of pretty much all sorts of different grains. And then we will have things that are used to um, make the food a bit less bulky, such as lime, little stones, <laughs> um, and all sorts of other things like uh, uh, meat meal, meat and bone meal, and other things that are actually all of natural source so it is the supplements uh supplementing exact amount of vitamins and then uh, shaping uh the, the the feed according to different stage because for say for chickens we have starter grower and finisher and so starter is meant to give them healthy gut microbiota and very good start and at the start they grow like a ridiculous rate and then we have grower and finisher is there to, to kind of make sure that the meat is of perfect quality and taste as well for, for the consumer. So um, in that respect, animals will eat only the feed that you give them. And the birds, for example, are bred and so go, same goes for pigs and other, other livestock animals. They're bred for, for healthy appetite. So uh, they will eat whatever is given to them. And they usually eat at libitum, so they will eat, which is, can be a problem with, with chickens because they can overeat and then can't stand on their feet and whatnot. Uh, but with human nutrition, we are facing something completely different. 
uh, human nutrition is not strictly controlled and humans really do not have control of how much they eat and the quality. We all know what's healthy, but we all crave for Krispy Kremes. Oh my God, I crave for Krispy Kremes. Um, so it's hard for us to control what we eat. Uh, and therefore, human nutrition is quite all over the place. Uh, we, and the diets that are offered to us for healthy and things that are marketed as healthy, not necessarily always healthy. So what we're facing uh, in human nutrition uh, based on the changes of, of, of human nutrition, where we jumped from the food that our great great grandparents were eating, that was you know backyard grown food, um, not industrial scale, so everything was pretty much raw. We now eat extremely processed food. When you go to shops, I mean, other than just buying raw fruit and vegetables, that also have a lot of things that should not be on them like uh, herbicide pesticides but also the chemicals that make them fresh and other shelf life extension and stuff like that uh, compared to the stuff that our great great grandparents were eating we are eating extremely processed food and amount of sugar that this generation consumes is absolutely ridiculous and therefore when that happens uh, compared to the ancestors we what enters our gut is completely different. So uh, we, other than eating ridiculous amounts of sugar, as I said before, we are also taking in a lot of chemicals, food additives, um, art artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, and all the other things that make the way into our food. And those things do not belong in the gut. Uh, and gut struggles to cope with all the chemicals, plus the medication, supplements that people take also all of these things have changed so if you look at food that your grandparents ate it would be so rich in fiber today's people today young generation will eat so much sugar instead of fiber so our colon is at the very back end of of the gut that used to sit there and wait for those fibers that couldn't be digested so everything that is sugarful and easy to digest would be cleaned up in upper intestine ileum and blah blah as you come to colon what you have there is stuff that couldn't be digested by upper intestine so that's where your bifidobacterium would come in and they would break those resistant starches and and all these other fibers that are hard to digest and make beautiful short chain fatty acids out of those things and short-chain fatty acids, a lot of people call them elixir of health and youth. A lot of health-promoting effect, like myriad of health-promoting effects come from these short-chain fatty acids. And if you don't have fiber, you don't have short-chain fatty acids. So today's people will have much less short-chain fatty acids, much less diversity, much less different, uh, different uh, um, healthy species. But also today's um, uh, today's people eat a lot of a lot of sugar, a lot of refined sugar, and that sugar should be clean in upper upper intestine. But because we eat so much of it, it makes its way to colon, and so instead of getting fiber into colon, feeding into your colon and feeding bifidobacteria and fecalibacterium prasnitsi and all of these other beautiful bacteria that make short chain fatty acids, instead of that, there is no fiber all those bacteria are dying off. And instead of that, 
sugar is coming into the colon and feeds the pathogens. We have a lot of issues um, with gut microbiota due to modern food. And uh, a lot of researchers refer to this as genocide of intestinal bacteria. Can I, can I ask a quick question? And I know I'm kind of going to backtrack a little bit. Um, you were talking about the, um, the feed for the chickens and you have a, a, a starter, a grower and a finisher. Um, and that's how you control the diet of the bird and then the bird, you know, grows bigger and it's got an accelerated growth in the beginning and so on. Just out of curiosity, and forgive my ignorance, but aren't we influencing the health of the chicken through the food that we make it eat and then we go and eat that chicken. I mean, given that the um, natural diet for a chicken, if it was probably in the wild, it would probably just be like green plants and, you know, seeds maybe and worms and insects. Yeah, grains, uh, grains were always the main food source for chickens that were grown in backyard for generations. Uh, very rarely could people allow their birds to be completely free because obviously there's too many predators. So even uh, 100 years ago, people would have chicken wire and all sorts of different things. And so, yes, those birds would get pl more plant material, definitely. Uh, you know, so peelings from the kitchen and all sorts of other things. And but, so, uh, so, with, so with that, I think, my, I guess my question is, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around how... Um, so the difference here is that all the ingredients we give to chickens or other livestock are of natural and perfectly balanced ingredients, whereas people will have food that is uh, completely unhealthy. So when now, you say... Obviously not everyone, but for chickens, whatever you give them, that's what they're going to eat. And that has been designed. It's mostly grain. It's mostly grain and supplements and a few other things. But and so those, those supplements, sorry to interrupt you, I just, I, I, I'm trying to... So those supplements and the extra boosts and the proteins, they're from food sources? Yes, yes, it's all from food sources. We can have fish meal, for example, uh, for protein source. Uh, soy, meal is, uh, soy meal is major protein source in, in chickens as well. So what's There's the meal no, bit? So the, pardon? What's the meal bit? So it's not obviously fish. Soy meal is, yeah, soy, soy, uh, soybean meal is just soy or other beans uh, could be also used, but it's just made into meal, which means like uh, almond meal, you know, it's just finely grated, uh, blended. That's why it's called meal. So it's softened or, and it's going to be absorbed much faster. Interesting. Also the grain, also grain is crushed, you know, and so that it's easier absorbed. Because, say, in chickens, food will stay in their gut for about two, two and a half hours. It's a very fast passage rate through the gut. Yeah. So uh, nutritionists for animal stock make sure that the food is fully used. So, for example, we measure um, when we run these nutritional trials, we will measure exactly how many calories is left in the poop. So, and we will measure how, how much vitamins and all other nutrients, how much is used because we want the animals to use like as much as possible, but we don't want them to be left wanting. So all of this can be done in animals, not just chickens. It can be done for pigs, for, for cattle, for whichever um, type of sort of uh, fed animals. 
but uh, for humans, as I said, we have completely different. We we do not eat uh, something out of the box that is pre-designed for us, and we just dissolve it in water, and that's and off we go. We make our own choices, choices that animals cannot make. We can uh, choose to binge. We can choose to fast. We can choose to. Um, to eat a lot of um, a very little fiber. No one really, uh, not many people can say they enjoy uh, green vegetables or broccoli in their feed, despite of knowing how good broccoli is for your health. So um, this is why we have obesity, uh, diabetes, uh, autoimmune disease, um, a lot of a lot of things that are now related to the change in gut microbiota that uh, we're not there a few generations ago. So I have two questions, Dana. One is to go back to the soybean meal, and then I want to ask you about your research on type 1 diabetes and the microbiota. I find this absolutely fascinating. But I I do have a question to ask you about uh, the soybean meal. So the the person who put me on to you was Dr Don Huber. And in 2011, he um, sent a letter to the USDA warning them about a foreign protein um, that he had never seen before in genetically modified um, glyphosate Roundup Ready soya. Um, So the soybean we're feeding these chickens, is it organic or is it genetically modified with the glyphosate in it? And if that is the case, then... Are you seeing any problems? Because he was talking about sudden death of animals, infertility of animals, um, and so on. Yeah, so uh, there is different flavours of organic. So um, or if the food, if the grain was treated uh, for anything, just grain that is not GMO, if it's treated with anything, it's, it is no longer organic. Organically grown food cannot have insecticides, pesticides, uh, and other things, whereas GMO is another, completely another different story. So whether food is organic, uh, in Australia, look, there is not much GMO uh, uh, food used, but organic feed is in big shortage uh, because it's very hard to grow things without spraying them every now and then against pests and all sorts of, you know, we get viral, bacterial, fungal infections, just like humans, they need, the, the, the crops need to be treated when they're sick. Um, so um, USA has, uh, I believe, much more uh, GMO-modified corn and um I don't know what is the situation in USA, but in Australia we have shortage of organic feed because it is very hot and it can be very humid. In humid areas, you know, you get fungal diseases and so all, all sorts of other issues. So uh, in Australia, when we say that food is not organic, we do not necessarily mean that it's GMO. Um, so Australian soy is not GMO, as far as I know, and I know quite a few major pol- uh, major soy growers uh, in Australia. In in Australia, so um, I believe that those things depend from country to country. Europe definitely nothing is GMO, but it's not necessarily organic because it will be uh, sprayed and and uh, pest controlled. Uh, so. Definitely uh, uh, glyphosate is finding its way into the food chain, in not just in animals but in humans as well. 
um, like if you calculate how much of that is remaining in Doritos, for example, you can get a headache uh, just looking at the numbers. And, uh, you know, it, it, is, it is everywhere and it is, uh, for example, in Australia we had in our, my university, we had a conference. Uh, that's when I met Dr. Don Hoover. Uh, we had lo- we really connected. We are mm. we pride ourselves for being in central Queensland, in the middle of of grain and, and uh, cattle uh, cattle industry. We are Rockhampton is um, beef capital of Australia. We have all these beef festivals and whatnot, um, and we are surrounded with farmers um, on every front. So we try to collaborate and work together with them to solve their problems and. They wanted to. Uh, they wanted us to organise a meeting, which is more like a conference, uh, to discuss their issues. So some of them that used uh, GMO, GMO feed, uh, have uh, later tried to to grow normal crops, and the amount, the saturation of glyphosate in uh, in uh, ground uh, prevented them from growing anything else successfully, and caused a lot of issues to the cattle when they try to rest the the earth to you know few seasons and allowed just grass so they would they would do grazing and cattle was getting seriously sick from the amount of glyphosate so they wanted us to make a seminar for them about how can it be removed from their pastures and and their agricultural land and that's when Dr. Hoover was invited to to give us a talk about that. That is completely another issue. And uh, I mean, uh, the, the amount of not just glyphosate, but the amount of chemicals that are saturating uh, the ground is going to be a major concern in next few generations, I think. It will be, we'll be working, we'll be publishing papers of bioremediation and how to remove those toxins that this generation is putting into the, into the ground right now. So at that conference, did you have an answer for the farmers as to how to um, get rid of the glyphosate and what it does? Because it's a, a patented antibiotic. So like, for me, Dana, I, I just keep seeing glyphosate as the root cause of the destruction of the microbiome in animals and humans, the destruction of the microbiome in the soil ecology. Therefore, our soil is is not got, number one, the minerals because it's a chelating agent. Number two, it's got an antibiotic sitting in it. The ecology is being, you know, degraded. The, the degradation of our gut of animals' guts. And so to have something that is going to get rid of glyphosate in our soils must be um, the, the, the thing that would just save what's happening here on the planet at the moment with the, with the destruction of soil and, and the microbiome of animals and humans. Yes, the, definitely there is a problem. Whichever chemical you put in the, into the ground, especially those that do not readily degrade, uh, there will be a problem for future generations and there will be accumulation, of course, in the soil. And whenever you change little, little things, tiniest things, the microbiota will respond. This is why we can cope with all different stresses. And, and one of the reasons is that our microbiota has the toolbox to respond to a lot of things. But if those things are consistent and building up, 
then eventually microbiota will start to suffer and we will have soil microbiota genocide, just like sugar and, and all, lack of fiber and all other bad things in our feed, additives that shouldn't be there are causing this massive change in modern Western diet people, microbiomes that make them fat, that make them obese, that make them, that give us autoimmune disease and all sorts of other things. Definitely glyphosate uh, can, at this stage, cannot be removed with, as to my knowledge, cannot be removed with uh, any chemicals. There is, um, there are some fungi that can, uh, they can, that can really uh, degrade uh, glyphosate, but um, much more research needs to be done. And there were few few people that presented their work, and it looked quite promising. But basically, what is the point of growing uh, GMO food, saturating ground with glyphosate, and then investing money to cure your to cure that soil uh, by pumping it with fungi that may or may not grow in your particular conditions? So um, there are a lot of issues in uh, that that affect gut microbiota, and we could talk all day about it. Yeah. Um, so, for example, modern grain. Uh, if uh, if you looked at the grain that our grandparents ate, that grain would have about twenty times less um, gluten and other gluteinoid proteins. So, uh, but selective breeding of grain that is resistant to this and resistant to that, and also the, the grains that make the fluffy, you know, the, the beautiful bread that helps yeast uh, during the bread raising and stuff like that. Uh, that type of selecting breeding came to modern grains that maybe even taste better because they have gluten or they're more resistant because they have gluten. But definitely modern grains have much more gluten than the original grains that we started from years ago. Mm. So um, there are a lot of other changes, like just the range of chemicals that if you look at the label of any of the foods that you, whatever you buy in the shop, literally, if you look at the back, I mean, how many natural ingredients are on that label and how many additives uh, that our gut and our brain has to deal with. So all of that, um, those things start from soil. So some things are picked up from unhealthy soil. Other things are picked up later in production um, and processing of that food. Uh, for from my, In my opinion, the biggest problem is refined sugars in diet. I think uh, they, uh, they are a major cause for extreme ridiculous rise of diabetes in in current human population especially western population but china has recorded uh, in last i believe seven years rise from two percent of population to ten percent um, of population that that is um that has diabetes or something like that. i'm not sure about the numbers but i know it was quite alarming uh, if you look at a number of children that are pre-diabetic in USA and other Western countries, it it can just <laughs> give you goosebumps. Yeah. So um, I so believe. Let's talk about your research with regards to type one diabetes and the microbiota, because. Um, Type 1 diabetes is increasing, autoimmune, which is an autoimmune disease, autoimmunity is increasing. And I'm just fascinated that you have, um, have been researching this in human health. Could you talk to us about that? 
Yes, um, basically there are three papers uh, that I published with my co-authors uh, with a team that is based in Monash University. Uh, that's with the professor, with Professor Charles Mackay. Um, so there are three different papers on autoimmune disease, and but they all have one thing in common. Uh, in one paper, we looked into asthma, and the other paper, we looked into colitis, and in third paper, we looked into type 1 diabetes using appropriate mouse models and also human research as well. And what we found is that if we supplement these animals uh, that are supposed to develop those diseases through either intervention or through their, like in nod mice, they spontaneously develop diabetes, very similar to human um, whereas, and asthma, we, we induced asthma with cockroach antigen and with colitis, we used chemicals that damage the gut and give strong colitis. Um, in all of these models, the disease uh, literally was controlled just by increasing intake of fiber or adding acetate and butyrate, those short-chain fatty acids that are made by degrading fiber into the diet. So we uh, combination either acetate or butyrate in feed uh, delivered through these acetylated or butyrated starches uh, that we used in our experiment. Um, or either acetate or butyrate were improving improving the disease symptoms, reducing destruction of of beta cells and in pancreatic beta cells, and and improving the the health of those mice delaying the onset of diabetes or removing it completely. But when we combined both of them together, uh, none of the mice got sick. So none of the mice developed diabetes. So, and this is just one of the papers that is showing that, yeah, I mean, there is no doubt we can completely reverse type two diabetes just by controlling the food and improving gut microbiota. Uh, but with type 1 diabetes, there is growing evidence uh, in the last few years that shows that, first of all, we can delay onset of, uh, of or remove onset. So you can have, uh, say, twins that have the same genetic predisposition for type 1 diabetes. And if you separate them, um, one of them can develop uh, type 1 diabetes. It can be induced by an event or by bad, bad environment, bad food, uh, bad lifestyle. Lifestyle decisions can uh, make sure that in some people it remains latent for all of their life and in others it comes up. Um, whereas um, with, um, with, with, think, with situations like that, uh, high fiber, appropriate food management, uh, and other other ways to improve the lifestyle can actually prevent the onset of type one diabetes in number of experimental animals, and it's always linked to to gut microbiota. That's incredible, absolutely incredible. With the amount of people that have type one diabetes are, are dependent on insulin for the rest of their lives, to know this information and, and why is it not out there? You know, you you I know a lot of mums who call me and say, my son or my daughter's just been diagnosed, you know, as a 13 or 14 year old, has just been diagnosed as a type one diabetic. He's in the honeymoon or she's in the honeymoon. And my doctor has just said, I'll, you know, let the body get rid of those cells and then we'll be able to regulate the insulin. But here you're saying that if we change the microbiota, we might be able to take them and leave them in the honeymoon period where 
there's no destruction of the beta cells of the pancreas. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, once someone gets uh, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, it's very little they can do for improvement. Uh, if, if we know that there is genetic predisposition and if we start controlling with high fiber and a lot of other diet interventions that have been published and lifestyle changes, we can delay or completely remove the onset. Like what we did with the mice that never developed it, but they were under extremely high amounts of fiber and very controlled nutrition. Uh, Once it's developed and in people that are already, uh, that already have their, their, all of their better cells uh, destroyed it is not possible to, it's just possible to manage um, the, the disease better with better food. But once people get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, very quickly they learn and it's like control your nutrition or die. And, and a lot of people, a lot of my friends, actually my niece has uh, type 1 diabetes and she said that before diagnosed, before she was diagnosed with it, she ate junk, absolute junk, and she was chubby and she she didn't feel that good. And now, as now diabetes type one diabetes made her take, learn everything about nutrition, made her control every gram of of sugar that she she will take to think about. Uh, release rate of this nutrient or that nutrient, how fast will that sugar come into her, in her, her diet? And she keeps saying, I wish I knew this before. I wish I, maybe I would never get it. And I do believe in that approach that if we know that there is genetic predisposition for type 1 diabetes, that these, that the very, care, very careful control and very, and when I'm talking uh, high fiber, I mean extremely, extremely high fiber. But that is that can be bad if you don't use the correct fiber. So if there there is research showing that uh, yes, if you have, for example, uh, a linen seed uh, uh, meal, um, it's good. But if you have too much of it, it can damage your gut and give you colitis. So there there are certain types of fiber that can release. That, that are not as difficult to digest and that can be used in combination with uh, enzymes, for example, and whatnot. Um, there is a lot more work that needs to be done on uh, bacteria that are associated with uh, good uh, response to, uh, with, uh, say, a good response to high level of glucose and or good response to insulin as well. Uh, there, is, there is a lot of research showing that there are potential uh, next generation probiotics that can be developed to help people with type one to manage disease better. Wow. So, (laughs) yeah, that is that that's wonderful. I want to just go back a step with the type one diabetes. So many people with type one diabetes um, don't even know that they have a predisposition or any issues about it until they end up with ketoacidosis and in hospital, almost in a coma. So what's the gene? Is there a gene? Do we know there's a gene? Should we all be tested? No, actually type 1 diabetes has multiple, multiple uh, causes. Uh, so there is a lot of lot of data published on that. There, there's combination of, combinations of genes, different alleles in population that make you more or less susceptible. There is a lot of other uh, external factors uh, that that work in combination. 
um, people often uh, have some idea that they could be at higher risk group if someone in the family had it. But with today's, uh, the rise of type 1 diabetes in last few years, if we just think about it, uh, rise of type 1, rise of type 2 diabetes and all of these autoimmune disease, they all have some genetic background. Uh, but how come suddenly in last 20 years it goes up by tenfold when we have the same genes? Like our genes didn't mutate, didn't change. It's the same genome in human population and yet we have type 1 diabetes literally soaring through the roof. And the reason for that comes from damaged gut microbiota and nutrition and ridiculously insulinogenic feed. Mm. Like food we eat will rocket our blood sugar all the time and our body just cannot cope with that. What, here is one example, one of the manuscripts that I really, uh, that gave me like a shock when I read it. And um, they were talking about the onset of what triggers T cells to kill uh, healthy, better cells that produce insulin. And the example there was that when person is continuously on high glucose, all the time, like you eat lollies and donuts and everything's sweet, your better cells are stressed to the core. Like they are nonstop making insulin, trying to, I mean, sugar is going to burn you from inside out. What happens with people that do not control diabetes? You know, the eyes, the kidneys, everything is burned out. So body is, is like frantically pumping the insulin to control that sugar. And we just keep eating more sugar, more sugar makes us feel good. It's almost like, like drug, like cocaine, <laughs> same like white, mm. terrible white powder. Uh, what happens to beta cells? They are in overdrive. So they're overproducing insulin. And when that happens, the errors in genetic in genetic uh, process of making the whole protein. So in transcription, translation, or any stage of going from DNA, which could be healthy DNA, encoding for proper insulin, uh, to the protein, we can end up with protein that has few amino acids uh, in the wrong place because it's rushed. You know, when you're making something quickly, it's not as perfect as when you take your time. When you overload it, when you have to make 10 times your normal quota, errors happen. And some particular errors in overloaded beta cells can trigger T cells to say, wait, this is not human protein, and then start killing beta cells. And that has been one of the things that have been identified as just triggered, triggered the triggered the, the way that it can be triggered in normal people. And today's Today's human population, this is one of the main uh, sort of ways that, that T cells get confused and start killing out our, our better, uh, better cells. It's incredible. Can we now just change tack a little bit on your research on uh, bariatric surgery and um, diabetes disappearing? Yes, so this is the project that we um, we got ethics application, human ethics sorted out and whatnot. But we did not yet uh, did not yet start working on it. But there is the reason we didn't start working on it is because um, a lot of ideas we had were already published by the time we sort of started getting into it. 
Uh, but basically what people are finding at the moment, it, it really, oops. Um, there is, there is, uh, sorry about that. So there is, um, there, the interesting stuff was where the, there was a group of uh, scientists that did um, a lot of research. I think they're Scandinavian kind of uh, team. Um, so what they did is they took obese people, they took microbiota samples before and after uh, uh, all of these types of, of bariatric surgery. So like, like a bypass or a vertical bending and thing, different types of, of, um, of that uh, of control of food intake in people. Uh, what they found is that uh, after, after the surgical intervention, gut microbiota is extremely changed. And it's changed in a way that it is promoting um, that good bacteria sort of start gaining in numbers and pathogens sort of start losing. But it is also combined with the amount of food that gets into your gut, obviously, after the intervention. It's completely different nutritional situation in the gut as well. Um, the way the mechanisms on how they become insulin-free, uh, we are talking about type 2 diabetes is pretty much uh, nutrition nutrition and intake of, of food and nutrients related uh, because these people, um, uh, the, the amount of sugar in their bloodstream is immediately reduced uh, after the surgery is done. And people can actually control with controlled fasting and uh, low calorie low carb diet they can actually reverse type 2 there were a lot of cases and a lot of research done on that as well in when when these researchers took gut microbiota from these people that did vertical uh, vertical banding or the stomach banding or or bypass gastric bypass um, and the obese or the microbiota before and after, and put they, they put it into germ-free mice. Those are mice that are grown in like a bubble and have never been exposed to any bacteria. So delivery was via Caesar section. There was a lot of antibiotics in there to make sure that they do not have any bacteria. Then they placed into isolators where air is filtered, uh, where food is sterilized. So they are completely germ-free. Uh, when you give, when you then give them fecal transplant from obese people uh, before and after these surgeries, um, what we're finding out that mice that get microbiota from the obese individual will get uh, very uh, they will get in two weeks they will become obese. Uh, those that get microbiota from gastric bypass, for example, will remain remain slim. And you keep them on the same feed, but the ones that got their gut microbiota from obese individuals will have much more glucose in blood uh, compared to those that had microbiota from patients after uh, weeks after they had gastric bypass, where their gut was completely changed. So there is a lot of links with all of these health conditions and healthy gut microbiota. And my main advice is, if you want to have healthy microbiota, re remove processed sugars. I'm not saying don't eat, you can eat fruit and vegetables all you like uh, and not count how much sugar is in banana or whatever. But if we cut out processed sugars and replace them with fiber, 
that is pretty much number one intervention that can solve like 50% or more of medical issues that we are dealing with at the moment in our medical sort of system. So if we know this, why is it not being done on a government level? Like we do it to animals, we make sure their diet's right so that they're doing well. I don't get why this isn't happening at a government level when we know this. This is science. This is there for us to see in plain day, yet we continue to market these revolting foods and then they go to their doctor because they have diabetes, prediabetes, insulin resistance, obesity um, or high cholesterol or whatever other autoimmune disease, and then that costs the government an absolute fortune. Cindy, Cindy, we're not shipping you off as livestock. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to make money from you by being well and doing you nutritionally sound. We're going to make a lot more money from you when you're sick with these problems, all right? I just find it frustrating. I don't. Oh, it's unbelievably frustrating. People are given choice and people know. I mean, it's impossible not to know what good nutrition is. Like you would have to live, come from another planet not to know what's good for you and what's bad for you. People know that and they still choose pleasure over health. And that is, that is how it is. And the only way for government to decide, okay, we want this population to be healthy would be to make drastic changes in regulation of food processing and food production. And that is very unlikely to happen because people that love that junk food will vote against it. Uh, it is like we are stuck in a loop and, and those of us who know and are willing to, you know, deprive ourselves from some of the bodily pleasures of sugar and sweet food um, will live longer, um, have healthier life and, not to talk about, oh, my God, if I start talking about epigenetic effects, it can it's, it's, completely it's, it's another, another can of work. like we're all crack addicts. Humans are their own worst enemy. It's, it's like this whole sugar epidemic has turned them into crack addicts that don't want to give it up even though we know it will kill us. So there is um, a science called epigenetics, and just to uh, quickly describe what that is all about, uh, we have it's epigenetics is like how environment can control gene expression. So we are born with the blueprint, right? We we have the blueprint for the house, which is our body and our system, and that is in the genome. But you can build that house with fantastic material, and you can build that house from scrapyard, and using the same blueprint. So epigenetics is. Uh, relating to how environment can influence the genome and change the genome. There are things in our environment that, that, that trigger remodeling of which germs are turned on and turned off. That happens in quite a few situations during growth and development. For example, when, when the sperm and egg are merged, you have one cell that has one set of genes, one of each chromosome, like, sorry, no, one of each gene from father and one of each gene from mother. So from that one single cell, we have to grow the brain cells, we have to grow the heart cells, we have to grow bone cells. And 
brain genes will be turned off in bone cells and vice versa. So there is a whole massive machinery that will turn the genes on and off. And that machinery needs folic acid to provide metal groups, needs acetic acid, acetate, vinegar, uh, to provide acetic uh, groups that are used to turn genes on and off and all sorts of other things that support that process. Um, but now what we've learned um, through the first study that was showing, and what we're talking about epigenetic effects is that what I do will affect my great-grandchildren because if I change my genes sort of on and off sort of epigenetic modeling, that can be translated to my children and their children. Um, and therefore, the first study that was done was actually an effect of sugar. It was done by Dr. Pottinger, uh, and he did a study with cats. So he fed the cats with the feed that had a lot of sugar. And he did that for a few generations. And if I, I just, uh, it, the, the whole topic just popped into my head. So I am not quite sure how many generations. I believe he went for three generations uh, where he fed the, 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 the cats with, with the milk uh, that contained sugar and the milk that didn't contain sugar. So those cats that were fed with, with high amounts of sugar, every next generation deteriorated worse. So first generation just had some minor health issues. In second generation, that amplified because the epigenetics was already affected and passed to next generation. And then next generation kept going on high sugar and next generation started having kidney failures, started having all sorts of health issues. The third, I believe that fourth generation did not happen because they were all infertile by fourth generation. Um, so when he repeated that study and stopped generation before the, the death sort of generation and tried to reverse this effect by feeding the cats normal food, it took few generations to come back to the original health. Therefore, everything we do to us, we are doing to our children and our grandchildren even. Uh, because they will get that messed up genome, um, epigenome from us if we keep eating bad food and having bad gut microbiota. Wow, that's a little bit of a responsibility kick in the guts, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I actually write about Potagen's cats in my book. Um, oh, right. Yeah, I wrote about them in the milk um, because he also looked at raw versus homogenized and pasteurized mm -hmm. and... You know, he went through the whole gamut with the cats and every single one of them had, you know, there was fertility issues um, very quickly. And so oh, I just... But what do you think about the microbiota? Although he didn't have sequencing methodology, he used the poop to fertilise the plants. Mm. And those images are just striking that in the first generation, the plants are growing beautifully fertilised and third generation the manure from those cats was killing the plants. And, you know, it's, it's all so connected. It is all, um, we, it's just a cycle in the nature where everything that you damage influences 10 other things and those 10 other things will trigger something else and it's a disaster of mm. enormous proportions of what is happening at the moment in not just in gut and human nutrition as well. Dana, with your knowledge of the microbiome and the, the biota and of animals and humans, 
Do you think we're getting to a point where we can't come back? Or do you think that we have enough knowledge to know what the microbiota of a Westerner looks like compared to, you know, an African native? Do, do you think that we've gone past the point of no return? You know, they're talking about we're now in the sixth greatest extinction. Um, so that's not just the extinction of uh, extinction of animals and plants, but that's the extinction of the, the microbes. Yeah. So give me some hope. <laughs> Tell me something that you think that we do know exactly what it's meant to look like and we've preserved these and there will be um, hope when this all comes out in the wash. So um, let me just give a few examples. Obesity, for example. We thought obesity is caused by eating. But, yes, you start with bad food. But there is now a term of obesogenic, obesogenic uh, microbiota, which is microbiota that you can transplant from one person to another and make the healthy person obese just by doing fecal transplant from obese individual to healthy individual, and that healthy individual will become obese. Uh, there, were, there were situations where uh, clinics that performed fecal transplant used uh, donors that were obese, and or everyone who got microbiota from those donors became obese, and then they, they, there was a legal action against the company and whatnot. So um, if we look into that, that means that if we are co-housing, if, if, if I'm co-housing with obese individual, there is, okay, with mice, mouse experiments, because mice will eat each other's poop, coprophagy sort of behavior, uh, with humans, there is still exchange of gut microbiota. And there are some scientists that are now saying that obesity is infection. So even if you eat good food and look after yourself, that you can, because the concentration of these bad obesogenic bacteria is so high in your environment, you can end up uh, unwillingly picking up some of it. And unless you are super careful in controlling your cravings, once you get them from these obesogenic bacteria, you can easily regress and become um, addict, sugar addict, just because the gut bacteria make you so. So are we past the point of no return i i believe it's different for each individual you can you have people that are in such extreme diets because they're afraid of these things there is a lot of knowledge circulating uh, good knowledge and bad knowledge good science and bad science on youtube just to begin with and you will see there are a lot of followers every diet that comes up as uh, sort of marketed as healthy will have a lot of followers and a lot of people that will try to to maintain their healthy lifestyle, uh, intermittent fasting, eat every other day, uh, extreme fasting like water fast, uh, uh, vegetarian, vegan, everything in between. There are people, a lot of people that are so trying, trying so hard to to improve their gut health and live healthy. Unfortunately, uh, for obese individuals, it is not just about any more about food because to, to cure their gut takes much longer, and a lot of diets fail because they do not they diet they starve themselves they do not see 
um, results. It's, it, it is metabolic syndrome. It is a lot of things that are here at play that, that are preventing people from, from recovering. So the recovery cannot be quick fix. That is the main thing that people should be aware of. You cannot recover by losing weight and then go back to lollies and donuts. It is just the way of life. It has, people have to acknowledge that sugar is not a treat. Sugar is poison. It is bad, bad, bad thing. And people just have to try to control it. Yes, of course, Christmas and, and Easter and birthdays and New Year's and whatnot, celebrations. And that's where it should stay. It should not be something we have first thing in the morning. It should not be something we have ton of every day. Um, and once we learn to control sugar and increase fiber, a lot of good things would happen. Just and a lot of one good thing can lead to another once the healthy change is accepted as permanent. There is no way. There is no diet that is short-term diet that will work because we'll just go back to where we were. The diet is something that you can manage, even if it's just reducing your sugar by fifty percent. And going on like that, even that will be massive improvement. Um, diet has to be something that you can take up for lifetime, and then you will enjoy the lifetime of benefits. So um, all of these diets that um, are offered as our way to restore our gut microbiota have to sort of take that into consideration that they have to be manageable long-term, like forever long-term. Maybe we'll just end up with the FMTs happening everywhere. (laughs) But, you know, then you've got to have an environment where the FMT is going to take. Otherwise, it's just a waste of time. So you've got to change the environment. So you've got to change the diet. I believe that that fecal transplant is the future. And I could talk a whole another hour about probiotics because my most of my work is development of probiotics for livestock the probiotics that work different type of administration early administration probiotics that can permanently colonize and how to do that Um, at the moment probiotics are not really going to do anything for you Uh, most of probiotics that are in circulation are dead bacteria because the process of freeze drying to pack it into capsule is killing most of those bacteria and those that are alive uh, when you put them into fresh growth media take few passages till they can grow vigorously and they don't have that much time when they get into our gut they have to come out of capsule and grow and they have only a few hours to do that before they eliminate it from the body so um yes there are some good probiotic uh, sort of products and there are much more of them are really useless the FMT fecal transplant is the future, I believe, of, of gut manipulation, uh, as well as early, early administration, which some Japanese hospital, hospitals are doing, uh, making uh, bifidobacteria that is alive and kicking and growing in, uh, in a, like Yakult kind of product that is given to people post-surgery and babies immediately after they're born to boost their to boost their health, like from day one. A lot of new approaches in, in helping gut microbiota, but if you undo all of that by eating bad food, it's not going to help either. Mm-hmm. So you can have fecal transplant from extremely skinny and athletic individual. 
if you keep the bad habits, it's just not going to do much. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So um, can we briefly talk about what you believe is a good administration of a probiotic? Um, I, I believe you've done some work with nanotechnology. Oh, yes. Well, the work on, again, another can of worms, right? Um, nanotechnology has been um, included in human feed, and we have struggled to publish a paper recently with my friends, my really good personal friend, Laurence Massia from, um, she's an amazing, amazing researcher. We had a few nature papers together, um, and just one of my favorite collaborators, really. Um, so what we, we were talking, we always chat on the phone about, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I said, I'm doing selenium nanoparticles in chickens. And I said, I'm finding that they actually, I thought I can use it to deliver vaccines to do this and that. But I said, I'm finding they're damaging the, the chicken gut. And she said, oh, I'm working on titanium. So, um, so I joined, we joined the forces and did that project together. Um, so her project on titanium nanoparticles is based on um, titanium oxide. Titanium dioxide is, has been used for generations in food as feed additive. They put it in capsules to make, you know, to dilute the, the very tiny micrograms of, free, of, of, um, of drug, you know, they use it as fillers. Uh, they were everywhere in human nutrition, no problem. They just get pooped out, literally. They're not going to do anything. But therefore, they were listed as approved, but they were approved in their normal form. Once you turn them into nanoparticles and put them in food industry without any testing of what happens when you use them as nanoparticles, this is where this disaster started. So... Um, there was no research done on toxicology of nanoparticles. And so when you eat uh, titanium dioxide in feed, it goes into your gut and it goes through the whole system of removal from the, through the gut and through the, through the liver or whatever other ways. But when you take titanium uh, uh, nanoparticles, they are so tiny, they diffuse through the cells. They, don't, they can just go anywhere, like water. So they're not limited in where they can go in our body. They can get through the blood-brain barrier. They can cause all sorts of issues. So what we did in this, in this experiment, uh, the nanoparticles, titanium nanoparticles, are extracted from mentos and tic tacs and, and lollies and given to mice uh, in psoriasis, uh, in uh, arthritis, and what was the other model? A colitis model. Colitis model was damage that gut that nanoparticles in feed are causing to your gut and cause of as cause of colitis published by Italian team. I do not know the names of researchers, but anyone can Google it out colitis and uh, nanoparticles and it will pop up as a first paper. Uh, we had a lot of issues because what we are saying is that the feed, uh, the regulation of nanoparticles in feed has to be immediately re-examined. That was the point of our paper. And it was very hard to even get the, the good journals to send it to review because it is controversial as a topic. So I don't know how many times that was rejected because it wasn't even sent to, re to review. Um, but basically, if we are able to show that the, the nanoparticles that, we, that are put in our food 
without any tox without any toxicology work to show that they are safe without any regulation, are causing arthritis, are causing psoriasis, are causing colitis, and God knows what else, there has to be uh, some kind of action to prevent that, uh, to, to kind of stop that. Because if you look in every cheesecake, every cheese that you have, all that melting lollies and texture that is just melting in your mouth, that's all nanoparticles. And it's everywhere. Uh, and so even to come out to the public and suggest that, okay, now we, you have to stop making these products. You can't make Tic Tacs and you can't make Mentos and you can't make this and that and that because it contains nanoparticles. Uh, all of these things will, uh, all of these things are just, you know, not possible. Uh, the regulation has to uh come back from come from government and nanoparticles in feed uh i am not saying that everything is equally damaging i'm not saying that that uh all types of nanoparticles and all sizes of nanoparticles will have the same effect i'm just saying that if they are in donuts they are in lollies they are in in cheeses and in cakes and in everything that 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 is palatable and yummy to eat um, and there should be more research and more regulations uh, uh, done on how we use them and how healthy they are and what they do to children that are number one consumers of lollies and, and all of these products that contain nanoparticles. Well, there was some, um, a study that came out of the University of Sydney uh, about nanoparticles uh, and um, the microbiome. And I actually got a hold of the researchers and we will be interviewing them. So we will delve into that in weeks to come. Well, but that, I, that's, is that Laurence's last author, Laurence Massia? Yes. I, it, look, it's a name I can't even pronounce. So, um, yes, he's one of them. I, I, if I can Laurence, get the name down. She's a lady. She's, uh, she's a friend. That, well, oh. I'm on that. I'm on that paper too. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. so funny! I didn't realize because I, you know, I, I didn't realize. Um, I just got their names, and because they're very unusual names, I didn't realize. So I look forward to talking to her. That'll be wonderful. Oh, she can she can uh, give you much more details about Good. about that about nanoparticles. Definitely, she's brilliant. She's amazing. Good. And, and nanotechnology so isn't only big, and obviously, what you're talking about with ingestion of things, but we know that it's huge in the skincare industry as well. Oh yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that's again another thing that I do not know about how that was regulated. I know particularly just about titanium nanoparticles. And they're not even named on labels. And number of labels, they're not named. Yeah. Like they, it doesn't say this contains titanium no. particles. It, no. it hides under numbers and additive X, Y, Z and, you know, things that are so hard to understand for, for I noticed it used to say that everyone was proud of it. You know, I noticed over the last 20 years of the beauty industry, I've seen, you know, nanotechnology, um, increased absorption, you know, all of these things. And I've just slowly started noticing it's not appearing on, on the covers of things. So obviously people yeah. are starting to become more clued. I do believe that I don't have any problem with nanoparticles in my paint for the house, you know, or roof or things like that. It belongs to some things, but it doesn't belong in gut. Mm. 
Dana, can I, I know we're coming to the end of the podcast. Um, a lot of beautiful mums, um, dads, a lot of people that are um, career people are listening to this podcast and, you know, they're fascinated with health, they're interested. Some of this may have gone over their head like it has mine and I parts of it. And I'm just wondering if you could bring down into a simplistic form if I just listened to this podcast and I was about to go to the farmer's markets or to the supermarket or whatever I was going to do this weekend, what would be your top tips on, maybe you could give us five, six, seven tips on what would you do first up if we knew that type 2 diabetes was in the family? What would you recommend to us to be doing in order to ensure the ongoing um, beautiful health of our generations to come? Well, I know what I'm doing. I get up first thing in the morning. I do about 30 minutes yoga and then I do weightlifting and then I do high cardio and then shower and go to work. I, I'm personally on intermittent fasting, so I eat just one meal a day. And that meal is loaded with vegetables, like I'm going to have like almost a whole head of broccoli for dinner tonight um, and a lot of other things. And piece of salmon, that's what I've got sorted for my one meal for today, for example. Uh, those obvious, obviously, that's a bit extreme. Um, but um, and I, I, what bothers me is that I still, I still bought Mars bars to my kids when I bought my broccoli because they were crying in the shopping center. And uh, <laughs> like sometimes I tell, <laughs> I tell my husband, you and I are eating healthy and we're poisoning them. But, you know, so I go, oh, mom, but just please, just this, I, I, I will go on a bike machine and I'll, or I'll go on rowing machine and I'll do it. And I just like, it feels so hard to tell your kid you can't have sweets. And, um, and that's one thing that I have to deal with. It's easy to control myself, but it's very hard as a parent to tell your, your children no for these, these matters. For me, the advice would be a lot of vegetables, a lot of, if you are, I am um, vegetarian, but I do eat fish, but uh, um, my kids, for example, they will have a lot of vegetables, they will have, um, uh, they will have um, a sort of either healthy meat, I cook things in slow cooker uh, with a lot of healthy natural ingredients. I have backyard gardens to grow my own veggies, although I'm not very successful, I must say. My husband has a tropical fruit orchard and he has a lot of success in, in, um, in growing uh, fruits that you cannot find in shops simply because they do not, wouldn't last in storage the fruit that you have to pick from the tree, like custard apple and eat it straight away uh, and things like that. Um, we also try to, we all, and we make sure that our children are swimming and running and long distance running. Uh, and, and, you know, they have relatively healthy life, uh, active life and food loaded with fiber and natural non-processed ingredients. Yeah. It's brilliant. It and do you watch the sunrise? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, this this morning yoga was without sunrise because it's getting cold here, and I'm not very good in cold weather. But um, yes, yeah, so definitely, definitely, um, lots of fun. Yeah, Dana, I love that you are 
micro researching, you know, looking into the microbes and researching it and then showing it in your your life. So I just, you know, what I've got from this is let's get back to the way we've always eaten. Let's get back to the way we used to do things. Yes, we're understanding the science behind it, but let's stop playing with our food and let's stop, you know, putting these additives and these chemicals in our soils and, and just get back to basics. And it's, I think it's a mantra that, uh, you know, this is our sixth year that we've been doing this podcast and it's been our mantra for these six years. And you have just, for me, completely defined that this is what we should be doing. And like I've always known it, but you really have pushed the barrow for this, you know, for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for, for inviting me for, to your podcast. Yeah. Oh, and I just want to say thank you so much for reminding us that really the big takeaway for me was, you know, everything we do today does in fact affect uh, the next three generations. And it's frightening to think that within four generations we could in fact wipe ourselves out. Um, and it feels like we're doing that. I also really appreciate your your knowledge around um, the research with the microbiome. It's something that we've been talking about for a while. And for people like myself, obviously I can't speak on behalf of Karen who's had to leave us, but I just, I truly believe that um, for those of us that like to keep it simple, your rounding up at the end there mm -hmm. uh, is actually the simplicity and the way in which we should approach, approach life. I just do have one last question. Um, it's great that you say if we can help get our kids to understand how important veggies are and that fibre and the slow cooker, and yes, it's easy to teach them that this is a normal way of being from a young age. What about teenagers, though, that are so influenced by advertising, friends at school, tuck shops, um, everything is focused at them. And at that point in their lives, they actually think parents know nothing. So yeah. how do you, how would you encourage a young person to hear this information so that they hear it for themselves? Is there anywhere else that they can go or we can point them in that direction? Well, my, my teenagers, my daughter is uh, just about to be 13 in August and my son a month later is to be 15. So they are just early teens. Um, what I'm finding is that they will, they, all I need to do is show them, I take them to Google and I show them what sugar does to their face, pimples and all sorts of issues and how sugar actually feeds these pathogenic bacteria that grow on their skin and cause all sorts of skin issues and things. Um, despite of all the extreme things that I've tried, uh, when they have a play date and on weekends, uh, we we had to come to compromise. And with my teens, it's Monday to Friday, only healthy food, nothing else. So there is, it's just stuff that mom puts in the lunchbox and mom puts on the table uh, for dinner. But on weekends, uh, they each get $10 for junk food. And uh, we go to, to the shopping center and they'll pick some, you know, chips and lollies and, and juice. Juice is uh, not allowed during the weekdays and things that, and things that, uh, I'm sorry, I turned my, I turned my phone off and it's still doing it. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so I do everything I can as a parent and I have to say I'm not always successful. Um, 
they they do want when they have friends over there's no way it's not going to be junk food feast there's nothing I, i just get over it uh but i'm trying to kind of increase the days that are completely junk free to to sort of 80 percent if if or something like that and then allow them to have it as treats but treat only yeah it's a challenge isn't it they certainly and and here you are a major researcher highly intellectual and academic and have all the research and everything but i bet they still think you're crazy yeah oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah silly (laughs) mummy (laughs) <laughs> oh, sweetheart. Well, look, I, is there anything else that you would love our listeners to hear or to know um, that would be your final parting message? Oh, the final parting message would just be eat healthy, move, do not sit at the TV all day. Um, once you walk outside, you just need to get out of the house. And once you, you feel the sunshine on your face, you will want to walk and you will want to spend more time outdoor. Um, lack of outdoor time is also a big issue for human health. Uh, it's a massive issue, like compared to our ancestors that were being outdoor for most of the daylight time, you know, that didn't have even, uh, you know, electricity in the house and things, simple basic things, they were forced to enjoy, you know, the, the benefits of exposure to sunlight and, and, um, and the other benefits of being, spending some time outdoor. So pretty much healthy life and healthy food and live long and prosper. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest takeaways I've always learned on this podcast is that enjoying life is probably uh, just as big an impact as eating all the right foods and having it with the right people. Absolutely. Stress kills gut microbiota and gives rise to pathogens and then dysbiosis and all other things that can, can follow from it. Stress is a major thing. Yeah, if possible, if possible, eliminating. But, you know, it's easy to say eliminate stress when life is stressing us from every angle. But also to appreciate that stress has a good effect on our body. It's when, like you say, we go into distress or it becomes prolonged stress. But I completely agree and concur. Is there somewhere that we could um, follow you or where we could find out more information about you, Dana? Is there somewhere that our listeners can follow you? So there is a web page that is uh, that I I've been lazy and didn't update for quite a while, but we're fixing that right now. Right now, and it's uh, Gutsy Biotech, Gutsy Biotech uh, as web page and Gutsy Biotech uh, as um, as a Twitter handle as well. The gutsy G U T S Y B I O T E C H dot com. Yes, Gutsy Biotech. I'll put that in the the show notes. Yeah, perfect. Cindy, anything else you wanted to say, my darling? No, I, I've loved this um, whole thing. I, you know, when Dr. Don Huber said you need to find out what Dana's doing um, at Central Queensland University, I, I contacted her straight away and I'm so glad we did because even though, you know, we started off with research and science, it all came back to what we were talking about. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Dana, also thank you so much for um, reinforcing the power around fecal transplants. I just wanted to add that one in as well because I'm thinking more and more people are asking about this and what a beautiful way for us to uh, help uh, the humankind by using healthy 
um, fecal transplants, especially around babies and things. I think that was quite an important take-home I took as well. So thank you for that. Thank you. All right, beautiful listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast as much as we have. We did not want this one to end. I think it's safe to say that we all have a part to play in this and the sooner we realise and bring back the power and potency of plants, fibre and reducing what we've said for many, many years, even eliminating processed sugars if possible, then maybe, just maybe, those simple steps alone will increase and improve the health and well-being of our nation, let alone the world. So Dana, Stanley, thank you so, so much for joining us this week. I know on behalf of Cindy, Karen and myself, we're really grateful to your time and we really, truly do look forward to the more research that you present and, and hopefully unfold for us in the not-too-near future. Everybody, if you would like to place any comments, then please go to allthews.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat. Of course, you can go to the same wellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat where we really do look forward to hearing your comments. And please remember, one of the greatest ways that you can help us to get these messages and beautiful souls like Dana out there to the universe is by going to iTunes and giving us a five-star rating. That in itself can help us give people the education they may be searching for free of charge and with their own bias and their own understanding and their own willingness to learn, which I think is one of the greatest gifts that we can bestow on others. So until next week, guys, tune in in the same channel, same place, and we look forward to seeing you on the ride. The 2019 Wellness Summit is almost here. I love being at these events. They're always such a great, positive environment. It's been really great to um, listen to like-minded people and to um, meet a few people, actually. I've been to every summit and I've been to everyone and I'll always keep coming. It's always inspiring. It's been a real eye-opener. We're actually signed up to go to the breakthrough now. It's very motivating. I think it's great to listen to people who are inspired. And there's always something to learn and something to take away. I think uh, for myself and giving myself that um, opportunity to, to learn. There's so much going on in life and everything that you can get distracted and forget the things that you should be doing. And this always reminds you to get back on track and, and um, to focus on the things that are important, a holistic health. Just do it, yeah. Just yeah, suck it up and do it. It's, uh, it could be life-changing, yeah. I would say it's awesome and it's the start of changing your life. Come along, see what it's about, and enjoy it. It's an amazing event with like-minded, positive people, and you can't help but um, walk away feeling great. Positive Mentor presents the 2019 Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne. Can you afford to miss out? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.